Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. What a wonderful morning so far. Being together, worshiping, hearing testimonies, seeing baptism. I, I hope your heart is as encouraged as mine is today. Uh, as we've been working through uh, this first book of the Bible, the book Genesis means beginnings, uh, we've seen in the last couple chapters particularly that the dominant theme has been God's covenant with Abraham. And that brings up a, a question to us, how big a deal is it to be in a covenant relationship with God. Covenant is not a word we use a lot conversationally. I don't think most of us think in terms of being in covenants. Uh, even with God, we recognize there's relationship, we value that, uh, but do we see the impact of the fact that our relationship with God from his mouth is declared a covenant relationship. Well, the, the chapter before us speaks to the value of this particular type of relationship that God has invited us to. So let's read Genesis 18. <clears throat> the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour needed to make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took herds of and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. 
But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, you, you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 within the city that are righteous. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I whom but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find there 45. Again he spoke to them and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak, suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I found 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. The Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Our Heavenly Father, we, we have your word before us. It is your spirit who directed each letter, phrase, thought, truth. It is you speaking to us in this moment. May we hear you. May we be impacted by you, for you. In Jesus' name, amen. The main point of the message today Believer, know yourself as someone 
with, in a covenant with God. We should see ourselves as a person who lives in a covenant relationship with God. And we're going to see as we walk through the passage, that is a massively big deal. The first point I want to make of this, people in covenant with God live relationally with God. Three men, the beginning of chapter, arrive before Abraham's tent. We discover it, it is actually a theophany. A theophany means a, a visible presence of the invisible God. So the Lord himself, and I would agree with most scholars that any theophany is really the second person of the Godhead, the pre-incarnate Christ, appearing as a man before Abraham, and we will find the, the other two men are angels. Uh, we'll hear more about them next week. Now, think of the timing and context of this. The last chapter was all about the sign given of God's covenant. And the next thing the word of God presents to us, after covenant given, sign established, God visits Abraham. God personally, intimately comes to Abraham to live in covenant with God is a wondrously precious reality of his relational presence with us. They share a meal. They, they enjoy a conversation. God interacting with Abraham. God's presence, that is our natural habitat. We were created to walk with God. That is the picture of the garden when sin had not entered. God created us to live in true relationship, dialogue, seeing, speaking, hearing, relating to the person of God. That is what we are created for. As we have seen, to God, covenant means safety. E even when hard things come, it, it always comes to us with us being in God's hand. Covenant means care, blessing. It means the love of God saturates us. Covenant is the strongest relational word that God can use. There is no vocabulary God could present to us that shouts more loudly of how committed he is. We 
we see that the one flesh relationship of marriage is a picture of our living in commit covenant with God. Being in covenant means we don't have to wonder if God will show up. We don't have to wonder if yesterday's fall flat on our face failure means God's pulled back. We don't have to wonder if the abundance of our weaknesses and what we don't understand means that God's no longer engaged. God is committed in covenant, his promise. As we have seen, by his covenant ceremony, God declared, may I be torn in two if I fail to be committed in my promises to you. So to have this kind of relationship with God and to treat it casually is it not obvious how foolish that is we're speaking of God eternal committed covenant unbreakable relationship that he has unconditionally and forever embraced us with and to be casual with that because we're absorbed with something else. What a foolish exchange. And, and even, is it not callous of us? For the expression of God's love is displayed most fully in the sacrifice of his son, the shedding of his blood to save us to keep us forever, to be casual with the one who loves us so much. Who or what do you go to first when you're overwhelmed? Is it that you run to the person of God always first. Do you see covenant fulfillment, God's commitment to us, as that is the fulfillment of goodness? Or when you hear about covenant with God, you know it's a good thing, but it's kind of a fringe idea. How do you interact with God when you pray? Is it transactional? God, I need this. God, will you do this? And certainly there's, there's a lot of that we need to offer up. But do 
you speak to God thinking of him as the person who loves you with all that he is. How interested in God are you as you speak to him, as you think of him? Before we excuse ourselves as saying, well, God has never visited me like he did Abraham. I've never had to tell my wife, go out and get the fattened calf, you know, bring it in. Whether or not the Lord appeared, probably you've never said that to your wife. <laughs> Which is wise. Before we think... I've never had the experience of God that Abraham had. John 14, Jesus speaks to us. Jesus said, John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The new covenant that we're in through Christ, the new covenant also began with a personal visit by God. When did the new covenant actually begin? It was not when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It, it was not even at the cross or the resurrection. The new covenant began on the day of Pentecost when the promise of God and the statement of Jesus that the Spirit would be poured out on all who have believed and trusted in what Christ has done. At the moment of Pentecost is when the new covenant began. This covenant began with the presence of the Spirit who has always been with us. And now, from that moment on, in every believer would dwell forever. God does more than visit us. He lives in us. I, I've taught on the the nature, work, presence of the Holy Spirit numbers of times. Last year, I attended a, a, a course on pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, taught at the pastor's college, and Jeff Perswell was teaching, and there was one statement he made that over that whole week has stood out and has remained with me throughout the past year. He said, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which 1 Corinthians 12, 12 lets us know in as plain language as could ever be that every believer is baptized with the Holy Spirit. It is not something special for a few. Every believer, we're 
all baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a metaphor for conversion under the massive covenantal benefits which the Holy Spirit fulfills in and through us. Pentecost is when the Spirit was poured out to us. Holy Spirit baptism is that moment when each of us individually, personally, are brought into the body of Christ as we trust in him. Baptism is a rite of entrance. What we observed this morning, celebrating the entrance into the body of Christ of those two women who are, have declared their faith in him. We, we affirm they belong to him. They've been baptized into the body of Christ. The, the actual happening of that is the Holy Spirit baptism. Water baptism is our public celebration of it. Massive covenantal benefits poured out by God living forever in us. There is nothing bigger in this world than to have God's covenant presence. Nothing bigger. The second point I would make, and this we're gonna touch on very briefly, people in covenant with God live with unbreakable promises. And that point we've made week after week as we've been going through these last chapters. The Lord affirms his promise once again to Sarah, verses 10 and 11. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, verse 11. And Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way women had ceased to be with Sarah. To Sarah, it was an impossible promise. And in one way, she was right. She was physically unable to bear a child through age, and Abraham was physically unable to enable her to bear a child. It was humanly impossible, but to God, that promise of a son was indestructible. Once the promise had been made, it cannot be retracted, it cannot be broken, it cannot fail. To be in covenant with God is meant to let us know every promise that God gives us through Christ is indestructible, cannot fail, will come true. And so all that the gospel promises, you as an adopted child, you as one who has a new life in Christ, you as one who when you see him, we'll be like him. You as one who is loved forever. You as one who will live in his kingdom. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Unbreakable. Cannot fail. The third, the third point we'd see about living in covenant. 
people in covenant with God live with the revelation of God. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, meaning seeing that he is in covenant with me, shall I hide from him? God lets his covenant partner know his plans, what he's up to. God had already revealed to Abraham his plans that would involve his descendants for generations after him. Uh, here in, in this chapter, he is revealing something of his judgment that comes upon those who are unrighteous. In the new covenant, we have far greater clarity about God's purposes and his plans. You do not know all that will happen today or tomorrow, the, the little events in life, but you know this, what God is up to. You know the purpose of God in everything that happens. Pleasant, unpleasant, easy, difficult, you know God will glorify himself through that. We know God is establishing the kingdom of his son through that. God is working to sanctify and grow you in that. That we know every day, every situation, regardless of how much it makes sense, we know what God is about in this world. We know his purpose. God has revealed how we're to live. How are we to walk in this world? How are we to respond to whatever happens to us? How are we to prioritize life and values? God has revealed all of that. We live under the clear truth of God of what does it mean to live for him. God has not hid that. There are mysteries of the nature of God because he is beyond comprehending. And so there's some mystery in his sovereignty because it is great beyond human minds to wrap around. But we are clear about the nature of God, the character of God, what he has promised, how it will all end. For God ends his book of Revelation with the where he ends his, the Bible with the book of Revelation, which lets us know, how does all this end up? All of the craziness, all the uncertainty, all of the injustice, all of the destruction, all of the hurt, how, how does all of this end? And we're told clearly how it ends. Those who are in Christ are held and gathered and with him forever. And those who deny him will come under a judgment that is forever. We know how it ends. There, there is no lack of clarity by God of his intention. The book of Revelation, God's revealing what's going on. 
It is a gift to the church that no matter how crazy things are, we have peace. We see the end. And at the end is the person of Jesus gathering us together. That is how your life doesn't end, continues. As covenant partners with God, he has revealed what we need to flourish. Not just get by, to flourish. What is your roadmap? What shapes your attitudes about what is being successful or what do you do when suffering comes? Is your thinking about that flowing from what God tells us about it? How do you process the news when you watch it? One bit of advice might be, click. (laughs) How do you respond to the culture? Do you look for counsel in the places that cannot provide true wisdom? Are you going to counselors? Are you going to places that they may say some things of common grace that provide bits of help, but if they're not pointing you to Christ, what is the point of it? What is the direction they're pointing you to if it is not the person of Christ? Fourth, people in covenant with God live under the call of God. Verse 19. For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. By living Under the benefits of God's covenant, Abraham bore the responsibility of God's call. Now, as Christians, we can tend to think of the idea of calling as, well, that's something that pastors are under or a missionary. They God calls them to their work. And by that, we're we're thinking there's there's particular responsibility and task God has for them. And there there is truth in that. uh, But The call on God is upon everyone who is his. There is the particular calling work, what God has given us. We are all called to make, as we see in verse 19, we're called to make the way of the Lord the way of our life. That is the call of God on you. To live by his ways. That's the particular desire of God for your life. Specifically, individually, in all of your personal context. To follow the way of the Lord. 
this responsibility it's, comes from the nature of covenants, of commitment. It, it comes from the nature of God. He is our creator. He is the sustainer, Lord of all. He is deserving of it. He alone is perfectly good, wise. Where else would we go? This is not an attitude of imposition by God. I'm bigger than them. I'll make them do what I want. It is the expression of God's grace and goodness to us. It is God calling us to his ways. Is God rescuing us from what? Ourselves. God rescuing us from what Adam and Eve have done. God rescuing us from what you have done. God rescuing you from your own wisdom, your own priorities, your own ideas. God rescuing you from being your own God. And that is pure goodness for God to call you away from your selfishness and pride to what is the perfect goodness of his way. And in this verse, he gives particular and vital application of home discipleship. That you are to command your children and household to keep the way of the Lord. Parents are called to disciple their kids in the way of the Lord, meaning what is true of God. Uh, don't confuse this with moralism. It, it's not, these are standards, this is what we say, the Bible says that you have to do it. Uh, it's, this is God who is wondrous and worthy. Follow him. This is who he is. This is what he has said. This, this is what is good. This will protect you. This will cause you to flourish. This is the person of God. And that's why at Green Tree we involve and equip parents in, as part of youth ministry. That it, there's not a dichotomy from your discipleship and how the church is caring. It's why it's important to show up and be a part of that. Fifth. The fifth statement we'd make. And don't worry, I only have 18 of these. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. And then in the pause, everyone is thinking, how many do you have? Five. One hand. One hand worth of points. Five. People in covenant with God are given the heart of God. The bulk of this passage is Abraham pleading with God for grace. Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within this city. Suppose there's only five less. Suppose there are 40. Suppose there's just 30, 20. Suppose there are 10. Would you spare for 
10. Abraham is not arguing against God's righteous judgment. He, he declares, verse 25, you are the judge of the world. He's not arguing against God's righteous judgment. He is pleading with God for grace. And make sure we see this. This is not Abraham leading and coaxing God in a direction. This is God drawing out from Abraham the expression of God's own heart. Abraham was called by God and giving, given promises by God's grace. Abraham received a rescue from God, but when he was in his own foolishness, by God's grace. And now Abraham is echoing what God has shown to him. Lord, be gracious and merciful, for you are the God who saves. The heart of our ministry to people is our having God's heart for people. Our ministry for people is what is God's heart and declaring what God has done, what God desires. We're not called to condone the world and their ways, but we must bring the love of Christ to people. What is God's heart for the world? The most famous passage in the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that Whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life, meaning with me. Your burden for people is never bigger than that God has for them. It is an expression that you really are God's. It is part of what it means to be his, to live for him, to be like him. If you're here and you've, you've never seriously thought about what it means to be in relationship with him, there, there is hope nowhere else. And none, nothing, not the slightest shred of hope outside of Christ. For outside of Christ is, God will judge all sin. And whoever would believe, whoever would call out, he will save. Believer, to be in covenant with God, it is a massive reality. Do you see yourself this way? 
Do you see yourself as being in covenant relationship with God? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, in the expression of your heart and commitment, you would help us see with increased clarity the wonder of what this relationship is, of what you have brought us into that we might stand firm and faithful, at peace, hopeful, caring for others. May our lives be expression of being in covenant with you. And together we pray for those who have not experienced that, that they would see Christ and his beauty and be drawn to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.